guest today is the person who inspired our little podcast. Now, he is probably a little bit embarrassed that he inspired something like our podcast since his podcasts are so professional. Uh, we don't just throw the, we, we throw the show together. You have no idea. There is, there is nothing for, well, I mean, it's professional in that we actually have um, sponsors who pay us to do it. But other than that. Well, I don't believe you, given that I've been on your podcast and you guys do multiple podcasts a week, uh, including my favorite, the Slate Money Succession podcast that I will tell you, I listen to even though I'm in India and I can't watch Succession. So that's my level Whoa. of devotion. Oh, my God. You are, you are listening to the recaps without <laughs> having seen the show. Yes. And so I'm going to have to listen wild. twice. <laughs> that is absolutely wild. And by the way, Warner Brothers Discovery, get your act together and like make this thing available in India. Come on. Well, I think it is if I buy the local HBO, but uh, I wasn't willing to do let me introduce you. Our guest today is the incomparable Felix Salmon. We have known Felix from his prior incarnation as one of the great sovereign debt journalists. Now, of course, he is the guru of financial journalism. But <laughs> your, your introductions are legendary, me too. <laughs> but we want Felix to talk about sovereign debt today, at least a little bit. But uh, more important, as a backdrop to that, we're hoping, Felix, that you will uh, tell us a little bit about your forthcoming book. And then that can be a segue into us talking about a number of the big issues on the table, like whether or not really 60 or 70 countries are going to go into default, what's going to happen with the seizure of Russian assets, uh, the Russian bonds, the Ukrainian bonds, the money to fund Ukraine's restructuring, reconstruction, and of course, the 800-pound gorilla in the corner, which I guess is not really in the corner anymore, <laughs> China, and all of these restructurings that are going slow. So right. can we start with the book, Felix? Let's start with the book. Um, it's out on May the 9th. Uh, it is called The Phoenix Economy, Life, Work, and Money in the New Not Normal. And basically, the thesis is that the world changed profoundly in 2020, more profoundly, I think, than most people realized um, or realize now. Like, it felt like a really big deal at the time. And for reasons that I go into in the book, it feels like a less big of a deal now. But it was a big deal. And it is going to have incredibly profound repercussions for, for decades to come. And one of those repercussions definitely is in the region of geopolitics, um, sovereign relations, uh, money, borders, and of course, our favorite subject of, of debt restructurings. But that's just one of the many I have chapters on. I have, I, it's, it's in three segments. One is on time and space. One is on mind and body. One is on business and pleasure. You know, it, there, there are very 
broad implications of what happened in the pandemic. Um, and not just the pandemic, but like just more broadly, we are now entering this what I call new not normal world where things are not low volatility. They're not normal. They're not predictable anymore in sort of contradistinction to that sort of 70 year period from call it 1950 to 2020, where things were a little bit more predictable, let's say. And can can we, I was actually surprised to realize this was your first book because I'm like, surely Felix has written 15 books by now. But um, can, can you, we talk just a little bit more about the sort of end of the time of low volatility, because there's a, there's sort of a standard recurring story about volatility in, in sovereign debt markets that is kind of playing out again today. But you mean something much broader and deeper than that. And, you know, climate has a little bit to do with it, but in some ways less than I would have expected. So just can can you just talk a little bit more about that before we sure. get and, into and yeah and and climate is is definitely uh the kind of like looming backdrop to the whole book, right? It was if you think of the pandemic as being a collective action problem it's basically especially in the early weeks of the pandemic where the whole world had to just collectively stop moving in order to bend the curve and give us time to find therapeutics and vaccines and that kind of stuff um the question was how do you persuade you know 100 countries around the world billions of people around the world how do you get them all to sort of come together and act collectively to to save the planet um we really amazingly wonderfully we did um it didn't last forever it didn't last as long as most people would have liked but it did last for long enough to to really help and that is one of the things that gives me hope for the planet in terms of climate change that at least it's a sort of proof of concept that collective action that seems really difficult can be done um so that you know maybe we don't have the requisite degree of urgency when it comes to climate change that we had with the pandemic um, but there will be more pandemics you know we're not going to go another it's not going to be another hundred years between pandemics like last time there will be one much more quickly than this and so i feel like this need to cooperate across borders which um which was exactly what happened in the wake of the second world war right was that the international community came together with one voice to say, never again, we can never let this happen again. They created the United Nations, they created obviously the Bretton Woods institutions. And it's not like it was beautiful kumbaya from that day forward. But I think you can see um, if, you know, just looking at the Paris Club, that the degree of cooperation between countries was relatively high and relatively constructive. The fact that you managed to have things like preferred creditor status for the MDBs and, and that kind of thing, it, it showed that there was this broad international consensus on how things work. And then the debt crises really only started happening when, you know, in, in the private sector, right? So long, like, they were mostly private sector crises up until now. Um, and they and they mostly had public sector solutions, you know, the Brady plan and that kind of thing. And when they didn't have 
purely public sector solutions, you had quasi-public sector solutions, right? The London Club and like grandees like Bill Rhodes at Citibank were, they they considered themselves uh, to be sort of in that sort of gray zone between the public and private. And I think what we've seen with this latest little mini banking crisis that we just had, especially in Switzerland, is the degree to which big banks, systemically important banks, really are part of the public sector to a large degree and they're controlled by the public sector. Um, and that and that felt very much the case in this in the heyday of the London Club. And so it was only really once you get into the era of bond defaults, you know, Ecuador in 99 or whenever it was, that you start really seeing the red in tooth and claw holdout bondholder capitalist without any feeling of like noblesse oblige making a mess of of sovereign restructurings and that was that was wonderfully when i started really writing about it in earnest so that's been a, a fun journey for the past 25 years or so um and then yeah and now it's it's very very different like we have these collective action clauses people don't seem to worry about bond restructurings anymore um and now it's yeah, now it's all about China. So Felix, before we get to China, and I'm I'm going to I'm going to also ask you about one, one throwback uh matter uh having to do with syndicated loans booming. But first I wanted to ask you about something that I th- I think you do talk about in the book and relates to this topic of cooperation, which is the the US's at least this is my perception, increased willingness to f- use its control of the dollar, dollar's hegemony, I guess, or mm-hmm. uh, to impose its will wherever it wants. And specifically, this is rather obscure compared to, say, the sanctions, the broader sanctions on Russia. Uh, but you know, we, we've seen the U.S. in at least a couple of situations now, Venezuela and Russia, basically shut down the ability of the U.S. parties to trade those instruments unless they're just selling them to overseas investors. And because the U.S. market is so big, you can kill, you can basically kill the market for those bonds. Now, one would think there would be considerable worry about the negative effects of the U.S. behaving like this. But across two administrations, the Trump and the Biden administration, they they seem to be just doing more and more of this and maybe even more is to come. But I I, I don't know if this is something that uh, concerns you or it seems sort of I, I guess Bretton Woods really was sort of just a couple of countries or the U.S. really just taking over the world. So maybe it's always been one country. So, yeah, Bretton, Bretton Woods was drafted by the United States, you know, in a hotel in Bretton Woods. Um, and it really was a kind of very U.S. centric vision of the world, but at least 
they made a real effort to involve everyone else, right? At least there was more than just lip service paid to bringing the whole world together in agreement on the principles in, in Bretton Woods. And what you're talking about is something that I write about in the book is um, the weaponization of the dollar, right? And we saw it, as you say, in Russia, most explicitly. We've seen it in Venezuela. We've seen it in Afghanistan. It's existed for a long time in Cuba, but like Cuba has always been considered to be a little bit of a special case. Um, and it's it's something that is, yes, I would say worrying, but definitely indicative of this new not normal that I'm talking about in that the dollar has always historically been treated as this basic fact of life that we all, it's the... It's the playing field on which we all play. And then it suddenly turns out that the United States can just rip up that playing field and change the rules of the game for certain players whenever it likes. It can just wake up one morning and say, hey, you know, all of those foreign reserves that Russia has at the New York Fed, it just doesn't have those reserves anymore. And no one really considered that to be possible, you know, before Russia invaded Ukraine. And people were talking about it when the invasion happened as, quote, the nuclear option, right? It turned out not to be as damaging for Russia as people thought it would be, ex ante. But it was considered to be nuclear precisely because it really means that the United States is, is using the dollar for its own sort of geopolitical ends, rather than bolstering the dollar as this universal global unit of account that everyone can access more or less equally. And that's a really profound change. And I, I think the markets haven't really grokked how profound it is. And I do think that at the margin, especially for countries that fall increasingly within the Chinese sphere of influence, it is going to affect the degree to which they borrow and save in dollars. So Felix, my, I'm, I want to get to China, maybe even a little Argentina, but uh, I've been thinking about uh, one matter that I wanted to ask you specifically, since you have such a broad and deep uh, level of knowledge about the international debt markets. And that has to do with two matters that my sense is sort of got ignored at the World Bank IMF meetings. Although there's been a little bit of writing, I think Jonathan Wheatley of the Financial Times uh, wrote about this and Chelsea Delaney of the Wall Street Journal. But those two things are one, We've largely forgotten about syndicated loans uh, after the Latin American debt crisis, but they've always been there. And the scuttlebutt I'm hearing, including from people who are quite knowledgeable regarding countries in Africa in particular, is that there's been a boom in syndicated lending, especially since the EM bond markets have largely dried up. And these syndicated loans from the handful that Mark and I have seen, they avowedly reject any idea of collective decision-making. Uh, 
So we've, you know, we've. Oh been my god! We get, do we get to relitigate Peru versus Elliot all over again? That'll be yes. That's precisely so what I'm thinking. That's exactly <laughs> what I, I, I was going to ask you. That because I'm thinking, look, we're going to find out that these are kind of like these snakes and scorpions buried under each of these restructurings that we're not paying any attention to. Uh, but the other thing I wanted to ask you, Felix, as to whether you. Um, have been thinking about this, losing sleep about this, which is the the rise in the local bond markets in a large number of countries. So again, in the era of the Latin American debt crisis and maybe even the early 90s, many of the poorer countries around the world didn't really have local bond markets to speak of. Then the IMF and the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank invested a lot of funds and resources in helping build these local debt markets because there was economic wisdom that if if only we build the local debt markets, these countries, uh, you know, won't be as vulnerable to debt crises anymore. Well, now post COVID, we have countries that have giant local debt stocks. For example, Ghana, Sri Lanka, and they have giant foreign debt stocks and a bunch of buried syndicated loans. And at least in some of these countries, there is this sense that the local debt won't get restructured, whereas nobody sent that memo to China and the foreign debt holders. So this is yet another problem that I, I think we thought saw it as a solution, but seems like it's going to be a big problem for us. Right. So this is this is the standard story in um, in sovereign debt, right? It, it was ever thus is that there is the way that sovereigns broadly borrow. And then there are various other bits and pieces that aren't nearly as big or as nearly as systemically important. And they can be comfortably ignored in sovereign debt restructurings because they aren't very big um, and it's easiest to just ignore them. So, for instance, you know, um, Russia's Eurobonds in 1998, they paid out at par because they just there weren't enough of them for anyone to care. Um, and everyone just restructured the local um, Russian bonds. And that was all that was really needed. Um, and then what happens is that that creates this expectation that as an asset class, those things are immune. So that, you know, that was part of the reason why people love Eurobonds, especially after Russia and before Ecuador, it wasn't that long, um, was was like, oh, Eurobonds never get restructured. Um, and so everyone's like, this is great. If there's going to be a sovereign debt restructuring, we'll restructure we the, the London Club loans and we'll restructure the Paris Club debt. And we'll restructure the local debt if there's a lot of it, and we'll leave the eurobonds alone. And then, obviously, when countries went bust and had massive um, foreign bond liabilities, they had to restructure them, and that created 25 years worth of journalism from Felix Salmon. Um, but then, um, but then there's yeah, then you rinse and repeat. There's always some random new instrument that people think is is immune. It is weird. Like if you look at say Zambia. This idea that the foreign bonds get restructured, but the local bonds don't. It's the, it's the exact opposite of what happened in Russia. 
Um, but it's always just this idea of what's small, what's not important, combined with, I think, um, a slightly more justifiable argument that, number one, a healthy domestic bond market is going to help the kind of growth that we need to see from these countries in order to service any debt at all going forwards. And number two, given the degree to which the local banking system has, you know, is reliant on that um, local, on those local bonds for its own assets, um, restructuring would just be, it wouldn't help anything because it would just throw the entire banking system into insolvency and it would create a banking crisis on top of the sovereign debt crisis. So um, I think that those reasons make it slightly more likely that local bond markets might be either exempted or treated much more lightly. But as you say, when you have a really large and de- a successful move into local bonds in, in a country like Ghana, then at some point it just becomes too big to ignore. Yeah, I mean, both of Mitu's questions are, I had been planning on taking us right to China and asking a question about the sort of new world of official creditor heterogeneity. But both of Mitu's questions I want to follow up on, because it seems to me they're about a unanticipated kind of heterogeneity on the private creditor side, where, you know, I, I think we've kind of, in some ways, the the countries that are currently in crisis are a little simpler and maybe not such good examples of this problem. But, you know, Venezuela is still lurking out there. Argentina raises these issues. Lots of countries are going to raise these issues where now like, the bond creditors are kind of, I don't know, they're, they're not a big deal. And in fact, they're, they have, you've got big players with big positions and they're gonna, you know, take a tough negotiating position, but like eventually you have a mechanism for striking a deal with them. But now you've got many, many billions of dollars for many countries in arbitration claims and judgment holders, all of these people who are not restructurable except through bilateral negotiations. And I'm just, is is this new world of private creditor heterogeneity really as different as it seems to me that it is? Is it as significant as as I'm making it out to be? Or or is this just sort of a a slightly more noticeable instance of what's always been going on? It's a good question. I mean, I think when it comes to things like ICSID claims, again, that has always been something that's been small enough to ignore, right? and that you can let them wend their way through the courts over however many years they take, and then eventually um, they get paid out in full, and that's something that sovereigns can afford, and you don't need to bake it into your debt sustainability analysis because it just isn't big enough. But yeah, for sure, in some countries, that's not the case. And um, and yeah, and also like if it's an exit claim, like is that even private sector anymore? You know, does that become uh, an official sector obligation, a treaty obligation? Um, so it, you're you're right. There's a whole bunch of really gnarly things going on. I mean, Mitu was talking about how loans are coming back, which is mm-hmm. something that loans often do when when the bond window closes, right? If you know, if you need liquidity. Um, and the bond window isn't there, then the banks will be like, okay, 
we'll we'll come up with a solution for you at a price with a kind of implicit expectation that those things will wind up getting refinanced somehow if and when the bond window reopens although like you know these things aren't necessarily callable you know and or possible mm-hmm. and and like um you know it's entirely possible those loans will be like lurking around for a long time and might even be big enough to be systemic um and as we saw with with Elliot versus Peru you know loan documentation is really tough and and especially in this age of collective action clauses it's uh, you know any private sector holdout strategy um will definitely prefer to hold loans rather than bonds and i'm sure that all of the beloved vultures out there in the world are eyeing loans as like that's their new strategy precisely because now that we have these um beefed up cacs um it's it's much harder to hold out in in the bond restructuring so so this is maybe a good time just to to kind of turn it over to you a little bit to to ask you to talk about the role of china as sort of the preeminent largest bilateral lender and i i you know we've been talking on this podcast about the complications that adding china to the mix of official creditors has brought but i know you've been thinking about this more broadly and also against the kind of historical backdrop. And so I just I, I want to kind of turn it over to you to tell us what your views are on whether China's role in debt restructurings is how big of a complication do you think this is going to prove to be? Oh massive. Like I, I don't think you can underestimate it it's going to be a huge huge problem um well one interesting thing like that thing i was just talking about how um you know an exit judgment you know is that a private sector or a public sector obligation like one of the weird things about chinese loans is that from china's point of view like number one the distinction between the two is much less of a big deal and it's something they don't care about so much but most of these things are loans from chinese banks right and so yeah number one they're drawn up as loans with all of the kind of teeth that loans have but number two they're you know um loans from banks which might be state-owned banks and in, in, you know nearly always are state-owned banks or definitely state-controlled banks but there's still loans from banks, right? And and the Chinese are like, well, you know, we can behave like a loan holder here rather than like a Paris Club sovereign creditor. Um, sometimes, sometimes they're like, oh, you know, we will we will pay some lip service to the common framework or something, and 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 make some moves in the general direction of reality, which is that whatever the Chinese government wants, the Chinese government can do. Um, but they do seem to be uniquely reluctant among major creditors to grant the kind of deep and necessary debt relief that most of these poor countries increasingly need, especially now that we have exited the era of zero interest rates and debt service is becoming um, a, a real problem for many, many countries around the world. I, I mean, do you see 
sort of looking two or three years in the future, do you have a sense of what you expect to see? I mean, it, it so the reason I asked the question is some of the the difficulties and the proposals for solving them seem to me um, to create some hard choices for the the primary, mostly Western institutions like the IMF. So like the uh, the idea that the fund might approve a program without having received financing assurances for China, for instance, which is, you know, it hasn't happened yet, but an idea that's been floated. It, it seems to me that proposals like that suggest we're at sort of an inflection point where, you know, on the one hand, maybe there's some kind of cooperative relationship that one can imagine between China and the more traditional bilateral creditors. But the other world is one in which the traditional institutions just kind of like turn and face westward and China does its own thing. And um, proposals like the one I was describing about letting the fund uh, at least approve a program without having gotten financing assurances from China, you know, they suggest that that latter possibility is a real one. And I'm just wondering kind of what you think. Yeah. Um, so a large chunk of my book talks about liminal states and this idea of existing within a parenthesis. And that was a feeling that a lot of us had during the pandemic, right? We knew that we were in this kind of weird zone of lockdowns and masks and waiting for vaccines and that kind of thing. And we didn't know when it would end. And the fact that we didn't know when it would, would end was deeply uncomfortable and unnerving. And I do think that we're in that sort of liminal state right now. And we will be in that time horizon that you're talking about over the next two to three years of we know that the old regime, the old sovereign restructuring regime that kind of existed, you know, kind of existed over the past few years post-Argentina, um, doesn't really work anymore in the, you know, in countries where China is a major creditor. We know that at some point there will be some new status quo. We know we're not there yet. And so right now we're in that weird sort of liminal in-between stage, which is deeply uncomfortable. And I think what you're talking about when you're, you know, when people are making suggestions that, okay, so while we're in this in-between state, we need to do something. We can't just kind of twiddle our thumbs and let countries go nowhere. So, you know, what do you do with a Zambia or Sri Lanka or someone like that? And the answer, one of the potential answers is you just leave China as a big question mark. You restructure all of the debt, except for the China debt. Um, you leave China in default, and then at some point the parenthesis gets closed, we enter some new regime, the Chinese debt gets worked out in one way or another, and then we're in this new world, and you can do it in that kind of two-stage process. Um, and there is, I, I can, I, it, it's uncomfortable, but in a weird way, it's like deliberately uncomfortable, and it's knowingly uncomfortable, and you're like, you're being more explicit about the fact that like, this is not a permanent solution, you know, there is still a major um, predator standing out there who who could cause all manner of chaos if they want to. Um, but at least it's better than nothing. That and, and it is that sort of uncomfortable liminal solution. And I can definitely see in the context of a world where historically sovereign debt restructurings have always been 
um, have, have always been framed as like, this is a big global deal across all different types of debt classes, which is going to make our national debt sustainable and put us on the course for growth. And it's like, a, you know, it, it's hard, but we'll do it and there'll be haircuts and then we'll be fine. And, and, and then it will all be over once it's over. Like you have to, that in, in this case, you might need to get out of that mindset and say like, it's not a global deal. We're ignoring the elephant in the room and we're going to do what we can while ignoring the elephant in the room. And we're just going to sort of muddle through until that parenthesis closes. And it's deeply unnerving and uncomfortable. And it goes against how, you know, DSAs are, uh, are calculated and how um, debt negotiators like to think, but it might be the only option for the time being. So Felix, just to, to push on this idea that you you articulated, which as you were talking, I confess was sounding more and more attractive. But let, let me uh, let, let me try and make the case uh, for it. And it, this this draws on a couple of podcasts that we did, and I should mention again our podcasts are just an inspired <laughs> sub podcast of yours but no. we did we've done at least 3 and mark can correct me where we've talked to officials or journalists who work in poor countries uh, like some of the african countries and sri lanka and we've asked them about the china relationship and the internal perspective in almost every case has been, look, we really like the Chinese because they are here as long-term funders. They, their funding usually comes with local infrastructure uh, projects. And the Western countries have largely exited their their sort of, you know, either Cold War or post-imperialist uh, sort of projects, development projects. And so we're just left with China. And I think we just heard this a couple of weeks ago uh, from one official where he said, look, the Chinese are the only ones who answer my calls. They're going to give me my emergency funding. Nobody else will. And if that's the case, then you know, maybe they're maybe there is good reason to do what I think you were suggesting, which is, look, they're just doing a different thing. And it's too complicated to to try and say they're just like a Paris club country. I mean, yeah, no, that, that they feel like more like a dip creditor, you know, that they're, 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 they're the ones providing you money. Um, and, and it's, you know, in the chapter 11 case, that would be like debt from possession financing. And while a country can't take possession of another country, there's no like equity of Zambia. I think that it, there is a case to be made, and this is not new, right? This is there are definitely precedents for this, but there is a case to be made that you can, that if you are providing you you can provide new money in lieu of a haircut, basically. Um, it's you know I don't know how it would structure, but it's the way out of the problem if that is still the case if the chinese are still willing to lend to 
these countries that are in default, then that gives them a real negotiating edge with you know in the finance ministries of those countries. Okay, Felix, we're getting close to the end, and I can't help but ask you to go back to Argentina since you wrote so many of the important articles about Argentina, including about that uh, fabulous uh, World Bank guarantee that that blew up. And then when we were trying to write about Ghana, we're like, where's Felix's article? Why is it buried in? (laughs) It's it's hidden in the Euro Money archive somewhere. Oh, my goodness. I hate Euro Money. I know they were your employer, but I I can't believe they just kill all of this good stuff that they published and not deny access. But the thing I want to ask you about hasn't gotten that much attention, uh, which is these cases that stem from the 2001 Argentine default and then the the restructurings in 2005 and 2010, where I believe with a lot of pressure from fancy economists, Argentina issued a bunch of GDP warrants. And it didn't get very much from the creditors for the GDP warrants because the creditors you know, they were like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Uh, But now we've seen a UK court ruling against Argentina for, and I'm oversimplifying, basically fudging the numbers one way to overpay creditors and then fudging the numbers the other way to correct the overpayment after the IMF scolded them for bad uh, GDP numbers. And then creditors sued them for, uh, sued Argentina for fudging the numbers the second way. And now there's a ruling against Argentina. I think it's approximately $1.6 billion worth. And there's another case uh, waiting in the New York courts that could have uh, obligation of somewhere in the range of $8 billion. This is the, the Argentina nightmare never goes away and this kind of liability is going to send them back into default i would think okay there's a question mark there so i'm just thinking what does I mean, felix I, think about all this i mean like i mean like if uh, we, this would not be the first time that a u.s court ruling sent argentina back into default um i think if you look at the last time that a US court ruling sent Argentina back into default. It came as the federal courts in New York were clearly at the end of their tether with Argentina, which had been, you know, my favorite word, contumacious for many, many years and had just exhausted the patience. And there was quite a lot of patience in, you know, in the courtroom of uh, Judge Grisey and in the appeals court for a while and then eventually that patience ran out and they were like okay bastard like you know we're gonna really bring the hammer down and they did and Argentina went back down into the default but that that was after the judgment creditors had gone completely unpaid for year after year after year with Argentina being incredibly aggressive and populist and basically saying we will never pay you a penny and this kind of thing right so I think to sort of like pick up your hypothetical here, which is like, what happens if the US courts rule against Argentina 
and suddenly you get a whole bunch of GDP warrant holders with $8 billion worth of judgments against Argentina. Well, what you have is, you know, $8 billion worth of judgment creditors against Argentina. Um, and as we saw the last time, you know, a judgment credit, you know, if, if a judgment and $2.75 will get you onto the subway, right? You, you, what do you do with that judgment? And, um, and what happens then? And I think the answer is that the Argentine government is just less contumacious today than it was back then. And uh, there will probably be some kind of a settlement, some kind of an exchange, some kind of a deal. And you'll have a sort of like shadow restructuring thing where something will get worked out somehow and it might take a while, but it won't take a decade. And you won't, and it won't happen against a backdrop of literally hundreds of different cases coming up against, you know, coming up in Grise's court and lots of fractiousness and animosity. But I do think that like it does show how, you know, even though Mark was talking about, oh yeah, bonds send on the problem, we know how to deal with bonds. Like, yeah, no. Even relatively clean bond restructurings can come back and bite you in the ass. And yeah, like the GDP warrants, and we've seen this in in the um and the Brady deals as well, right? They had oil warrants that everyone thought were worthless until suddenly they were worth lots of money. And everyone's like, whoa, what did I do with those oil warrants which I snipped off from my Brady bonds years ago? And now they're trading somewhere and I don't know where. And you know, there was this massive problem with Q-SIPs and no one could trace them and no one knew who owned them. And it was like, these warrants, as you say, they, they get dreamed up by economists because they seem to align incentives and make sense, but they never get priced correctly, um, on, you know, in at issue. And they're never really valued at issue. And then it always takes years until suddenly people are like, oh shit, this is worth something. And then at that point, People have lost track of them. The, lo the local statistical agency has changed hands a few times and all of these other problems that we're running across in Argentina right now. And it's just a mess. And yeah, like the big mess that we're talking about, right? You know, as we've been talking about in the world of sovereign debt restructuring is China. But there are, as you say, a bunch of little messes, right? These, all of these syndicated loans are going to be a little mess. All of these, um, Exit judgments are going to be a little mess. These Argentine GDP warrants are going to be a little mess. There's no shortage of little messes. And and those little messes can, in, in any given country, be incredibly important. You started anyway being much more optimistic than I had been anticipating, which I guess is consistent with the theme we started with. And so maybe um, as we wrap up, I want to just bring this back to the book and to... Um, your sense of how the world has been changed in significant ways. Um, primarily, I think COVID is a is a significant contributor to that. But, but you know, all but, kinds. But yeah, of... the, the invasion of Ukraine was like was for, for our purposes was probably as important, if not more. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So, um, so what do you what are you worried about? going forward over the next five or 10 years. I, I can't, it's inconsistent with my nature to let us end on too optimistic a note. And so I want, I want to know what- You're, you're talking to someone called Felix. Mark. <laughs> I, it, like it is, I have a constitutional 
you know, just by a sheer nominative determinism, I need to, I need to be an optimist somehow. Yeah, well, well, we, we can all resist our natures a little <laughs> bit. So um, last word, what are you worried about for the next five or 10 years beyond, you know, more insurrections and uh, the heat death of the universe? I, I think over that five to 10 year horizon, what I'm worried about is the implosion of the dollar as this kind of global economic bedrock upon which the entire global economy rests. Uh, that we have done things to weaken that um, global faith in the dollar. That fiat currencies are, are only as strong, are only ever as strong as the amount of trust that people place in them. And we have done some pretty big thing, pretty big things to erode that trust. We did it to um, Venezuela, we did it to Afghanistan, we did it to Russia. And if you go back to um, the pandemic and the stimulus checks and the way that people, Americans, just like suddenly woke up one morning and saw these $1,400 deposits in their checking account, it made people think, wait, is money even real on some weird level? You know, money can just be magic out of nowhere. And that feeling that the dollar is a less real thing on some weird sort of metaphysical ontological level um, could really weaken the glue that holds the global economy together. And that's something if i was going to worry about one big profound thing it would probably be that so it sounds like you're going to be first in line at the parade where they roll the trillion dollar coin down uh oh my god i'm so i'm so pro i'm i'm, I'm a coin truther <laughs> for sure can we just i mean obviously the first best thing we can do is to just is, is to just abolish the debt limit but yeah no the coin the coin is super interesting right because on the one hand it just exposes the fiction that is the US dollar. But on the other hand, given that the US dollar is a fiction, why not take advantage of that fact? I can't, well, maybe premium bonds, maybe trillion dollar <laughs> coins. I don't know. I like all of these solutions to uh, all of these like second order or maybe fourth order solutions to a, a stupid political problem. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. Felix, thanks, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Mark. And me too. Like uh, one day, one day I will manage to get through a conversation or an email with you where, where you where I don't have to sit through half an hour of like extreme extreme flattery. But it won't be today. Thank you, Felix. You are too <laughs> modest. The flattery will only increase. Except that it's not flattery; oh, it's boy. real. <laughs> Thanks, guys.